Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is videocast episode 34 and podcast episode 14 for the week ending June 12th, 2020. Very exciting week. We're going to kick it off as we do each week uh, with some of the media spots. And first, I'd like to thank Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett over at Fox Business for having me on late last Friday. We weren't able to get it out in the podcast last week. But definitely check this one out because we talk a lot about banks and cyclicals. And you can find all of these here at Hedge Fund Tips under the Featured On button and they'll come right up. Uh, so thanks for having me on on Friday. Uh, here we have um, Reuters. I'd like to thank um, Chibuke Ogu for having me in his article earlier this week. And we were basically talking about how the jobs report blew away expectations uh, to go from negative 20 million to plus 2.5. And that was really a positive sign. And we're starting to see in the market the magnitude and speed of the US government intervention. And the market's now looking through the short-term negative GDP numbers, which everyone expects for Q2, and towards a much stronger recovery in the back half and certainly in 2021, which we're going to cover quite a bit. Uh, so thanks again, Chibuke, for having me in your Reuters article this week. And this one we did on Tuesday which was pretty timely because it lays out the case for what works coming out of recessions and also talking about uh, some opportunity moving forward. So we're actually going to play this one minute clip just to get the context for this week's videocast podcast. And here we go. Tom Hayes, let me start with you. I know the answer to this question. And it's yeah, they missed the greatest entry point. But is it better late than never? Should they get in now? Yeah, um, well, Liz, there's no question, as you said, we're up 40, 44, 45% uh, in the short term. And even if we push higher here in the short term, it's okay. Over the summer, we're gonna have to digest this quick move. And we are at the beginning of a new cycle. So while in the short term, we've moved a lot and we'll digest that, in the intermediate to long term, this is the beginning of a brand new cycle. So uh, use these opportunities in coming months to add to cyclicals. Why cyclicals? Because those are the sectors that perform the best coming out of a recession in a new cycle, like banks, like defense stocks, like home builders, like energy, like small caps. And even if you've missed out on this 45% move, uh, there's one sector that's still cheap that's lagged behind, and that's banks. 95% of financials have dividend yields greater than the 10-year yield. They're sitting on a half a trillion dollars of cash. They're well capitalized, and the credit reserves uh, that they're going to have to take are smaller than anticipated because of the intervention of the Fed and of the Treasury. So we still like banks here. We like adding cyclicals over the summer on any mini mild pullbacks. And uh, the opportunity is well ahead of us in coming years with all the stimulus, 12% of global GDP fiscal stimulus. We've never seen anything like that. And with uh, earnings estimates for 2021 at $165 a share, we have room to run and we're gonna be seeing new highs in the S&P too, uh, for sure in the next 12 months and probably a lot sooner. Yeah, you know, Phil, uh, the Fed. Okay, so that's a lot of what we're gonna be talking about 
this week uh, is that setup. And boy, did we get the mini pullback right away. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, just a day and a half later, uh, we got that. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means moving forward. But again, even with those, you can uh, find that here under Featured On. So now let's get to the most important part of the week, which is the Carly Pierce, I hope you're happy now, stock market and sentiment results. Now we write these every week on Wednesday night and we post them on Thursday morning just to give you a little context. So we were coming off uh, pretty strong highs going into writing this. And the concept, the reason I chose these lyrics from country star Carly Pierce is it was kind of looking forward to the summer and the mini pullbacks that we talked about on Tuesday on Liz's show. And again, thank you to Ellie Terrett and Liz Clayman over at Fox Business for having me also on Tuesday. I enjoyed that very much. So um, the lyrics were, it's all on me, it's my mistake, I said I don't love you a little too late. So what I'm getting at here was People joining the rally late, last in, and winding up being first out. And we're going to look at the data that actually supports the anticipation of that. And we've actually seen it in condensed time. As a matter of fact, it feels like everything has been in condensed time with this rally. Uh, you know, 45% was quicker than ever. The crash was quicker than ever. This pullback is quicker than ever. Uh, so everything seems to be moving in warp speed. And... Uh, what I wrote on Wednesday night was with the S&P up, uh, it was actually 48% on my data, but uh, from March 23rd to June 8th, we've come very far, very fast. Not the time to fall in love with the market across the board. That doesn't mean there's not opportunity on a sector by sector and company by company basis. So, um, and I said, you know, considering we were aggressive buyers in late March and early April, it may be surprising to hear me now throw out a whiff of short-term caution, but hang tight, it's nuanced and we're gonna discuss. And we're gonna break it down in some granularity here on the podcast video cast. Um, you know, and, and the joke was that, uh, and we'll see it in the institutional data, how late they were to the party and now they were the first ones to puke. You know, it's interesting. The narrative in the media the last two weeks has been that the retail money is the stupid money. But the, the data actually doesn't prove that out. As a matter of fact, the data supports that all the smart people were saying to be cautious at the bottom and all the retail, uh, more of the retail money than normal was putting their stimulus checks in closer to the bottom uh, for companies like Boeing and GE. And yes, they were in, you know, bankrupt companies. So there, there were obviously, you know, rookie errors made on that front. But they were willing to take a little more risk, maybe because it was the government stimulus money, maybe because it uh, was they didn't know better or they were looking for a bargain or whatever it happens to be. But they were earlier than institutions this time. So for all the media noise that the retail was the dumb money, we're going to see that the data actually doesn't bear that out in this instance. Now, uh, the story is not closed, so, you know, we can see moving forward. But um, the joke that I made was that since the institutional money uh, was late to the rally, having missed much of the rebound, now they're forced into the market to chase. And it won't be long until it's 2 a.m. and they're on 34th Street in Koreatown with a junior, junior analyst 
wondering how they got there, saying, it's all on me, it's my mistake, I don't love, I said I don't love you a little too late, meaning they got into the rally at the top and um, they were late and then the market corrected. And it seemed to do what would be a normal pullback that we were anticipating in coming weeks, which we said on Tuesday on Liz's show, uh, it seemed to happen all in one or two days here. Uh, you know, to get a six, seven percent pullback was pretty abrupt, pretty quickly. That's not to say we won't get a few uh, tremors after quake tremors next week and maybe some some opportunities, but it is to say that it took a lot of heat off, and we're going to see just how quickly. Not only were they late to panic buy in in the last two weeks, but they puked uh, yesterday, and you're going to see it again that it was the institutions that were um, kind of the dumb money in this rally, uh, which is unusual versus uh, versus the retail money. So, um, so basically. Warren Buffett talks about this phenomenon of institutional money managers subject to the swing you bum pressures of being in cash. So, so many of these managers, as it was going up, kept calling for the retest of the lows or that this wasn't and we were going to take out the lows. Um, and the higher it went, and, and, I, and on one of the podcasts, by the way, I said that there, because consensus is that you're going to retest the lows, the market has a funny way of when everyone's looking for it, that it has a funny way of not letting people in. And that's exactly what happened. And the same thing happened in December of 2018. So I'm, I'm surprised there wasn't a little recency bias there, but every single um, talking head was convinced that there was going to be a retest and that's why the market didn't give it to them. Uh, I was just, you know, um, and we're going to cover this, but you can see I had a number of media appearances around the lows. And again, you can go to featured on and look them up by date. But I posted one here. I'm not going to play it for you. You can play it on your own time. Um, I, I was saying, look, you can't call the bottom. OK, however, there are the highest quality franchises that have been around for decades that are trading at 40 to 60 percent discounts. And I remember on several shows, I said, look, are people going to take, you know, 35 percent less medication when I was talking about Pfizer being down over 30 percent next year than they did last year? Are uh, is Wells Fargo going to make 50 percent less loans when it was down over 50 percent? Uh, same with JP Morgan, same with, uh, you know, Pfizer, Coca-Cola. Are they going to drink 40 percent? So you can see that. So I wasn't as um, anxious and excited about, you know, picking the bottom because that's, you know, that so what? The key is that you get paid and, and you do well for yourself and for your clients. But the key was that um, irrespective of whether it was the bottom or not, what's the difference if you bought Wells Fargo down 55 percent? Could it go down to 70%? Maybe, uh, very unlikely, but so what? You're not trading on margin, you would just hold through. Could Coca-Cola have gone down 50% instead of 40%? Of course it could, but so what? It, you know, These are franchises that have been around for decades. And I think it's valuable if you have time to click on that in this article. And uh, by the way, to where to find the article, just scroll down on the right side at hedgefundtips.com. Under popular posts, it's the first one, the Carly Pierce, I hope you're happy now, stock market. Um, so it's not about some magical ability to call the bottom. It was 
individual companies that were historically cheap relative to their historic prospects and their future prospects pricing in the worst case scenario whether the market had bottomed or not and that was um there's a lot in there that you can pull from and just file it away because other experiences like this will come up in the future and you'll really be positioned to benefit from it so um so what Buffett says here is that he pities the pros at the investment institutions because basically he goes, I call investing the greatest business in the world because you never have to swing. You stand at the plate, the pitcher throws you General Motors at 47, US Steel at 39, no one calls a strike on you. There's no penalty except opportunity lost. By the way, that can be a big penalty, but fair enough. Uh, all, all day you can wait for the pitch you like and when the fielders are asleep, you step up and hit it. Fair enough. A lot of people kept the bat on the shoulder in March and they, they did miss the cost of opportunity, missing opportunity was significant. But he also pointed to pity the pros at the investment institutions. They're victims of impossible performance measurements, says Buffett, continuing his baseball imagery. It's like Babe Ruth at bat with 50,000 fans and the club owner yelling, swing you bum, and some guy is trying to pitch him an intentional walk. They know if they don't take a swing at the next pitch, the, the guy's going to say, turn in your uniform, you're done. And that's the career risk that managers face and were stuck with, not only on the downside when it was at the lows, um, but more so on the way up after it had rebounded 30 and 40%. And we're going to look at the trajectory of when they were entering. They were then forced in because how do you explain how did how would they explain to their clients that not only did they potentially lose money on the downside and they could justifiably say well how could i have predicted a pandemic fair enough but uh although the bonds were telling the story ahead of time uh which we covered last week but after the market had rebound 30 and 40 percent they got forced in because they were all looking for the retest or the break of the lows to buy even cheaper. And then they're stuck up 40% and their clients are going, you just missed the biggest rally and it forced them in up top. And, and here's the worst case scenario. It forced them all in in the last two weeks after the move had already been made. And hence, they got flushed yesterday. So, so we're going to look at that data. And it's not for anything to be right or wrong. It's to recognize the patterns in the future so you can take advantage of them and uh, and benefit from them. So we talked a lot about banks, particularly in the Friday episode, and do watch it because we go into specific names. We don't have time to play it now. Um, and then on yesterday, you had this big correction, 6-7%, from two, a few things. Um, it was attributed to a few things. Number one, Chair Powell on Wednesday, late Wednesday, said that he's going to keep rates low for a long time till 2022 at the earliest. He's going to keep rates pinned low. And the market interpreted that as um, this recovery is going to take a lot longer than everyone is anticipating. In other words, what does Chair Powell know that we don't know? And the answer, if you look back historically, is the Fed knows nothing that we don't know. Uh, however, that type of languaging caused a lot of fear in the market. Now, uh, Peter Navarro was on the next day, and I, I you know, um, mixed views there, but he said something that 
I thought was funny, but I don't know that it was totally appropriate, uh, uh, accurate. He said, you know, Powell is so bad at marketing that if he had to sell sushi, he would label it ke uh, cold dead fish to sell it. Um, I think that's a little extreme. I think basically the message that Chair Powell wanted, that, that by the way, that's how the market took it. You know, basically Powell came in and said, guys, here's your top tier sushi. Uh, you know, um, it, this is gonna be incredible. We, we've got the put, the Fed put is in the market. It was what he was trying to say. How the market took it was, uh, this th is this recovery ever gonna happen? So, um, the other thing that he said to try to clarify his point is we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. And lastly was that they were going to keep doing asset purchases at at least 80 billion a month, which was critical because the historic fear with Chair Powell has been uh, that the minute things slightly get going, he pulls back on the gas pedal and that causes things to uh, hiccup materially. And what he basically said was, we're not gonna do that. We are gonna keep rates low. Uh, we are going to um, uh, keep up the asset purchases and we encourage Congress to take a look at doing another stimulus package, which he basically implicitly or explicitly said. He said all the right things. Uh, it made the market nervous. The second thing that made the market nervous was that there were increased cases in Arizona and Texas and I think Florida. Now, I saw a health expert on TV today, I think it was Yahoo Finance, who said <laughs> that the number to be looking at at this stage is not new cases because we're gonna have a lot more new cases because we have a lot more testing than we've ever had. The testing is through the roof. Uh, what you need to be looking at is new hospitalizations because that measures the severity of the new cases that we're having. And I'll actually just skip ahead here. Uh, you can see through last week, this is by age. Uh, this is from the CDC. I guess the new data will be out tomorrow but this has continued to just go down materially in terms of hospitalization. So while the testing's through the roof and more people are showing up with it, that's in the healthy and the at-risk groups, um, the hospitalizations are, are falling, which means the severity is gone. I spoke to a lo local doctor friend at our local hospital here in Connecticut. He said they have four people in the ICU and I think two people were released. So it's basically uh, uh, come down quite a bit in Connecticut. So that's the number that we need to be focused on. Cases going up is a good thing. It means testing is going up. Obviously, we want testing to go up and cases to go down. That, that will happen as well. But that spooked the markets uh, a bit. And then the third thing that spooked the markets, and we've been a big proponent of banks, uh, is that the CFO of Wells Fargo said that they are going to be super conservative and... Uh, uh, take reserves to make sure we've got full coverage for, for all the losses we can imagine. And I think this is similar to what Buffett did not buying at the bottom. When I put out the note that I said, you know, Buffett may not be as bearish as everyone thinks. He may not be able to act because he had 130 something billion dollars of cash. But he made an important point is that he was required to keep reserves in the event of the most severe 
outcome from an insurance standpoint and an insurance liability. So he wanted $20 billion of cash. He was happy to do a $30 billion deal on Monday if the right deal came along. So the implication was he needed to feel comfortable. He needed to set aside $80 billion of reserves at that point because he didn't know how it was going to play out. My guess is that that view has changed as we've gotten a handle on the numbers and uh, we, we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel with, with what's happened around the world, with uh, China ahead of us, with Europe ahead of us, and seeing good things happening as the world opens up. So, um, so this was not news, but it was just the combination. You know, they needed to take a breather after a 54% run off the bottom. Uh, this is normal in a sharp recovery after a sharp dislocation and those were really the three key factors that caused the um the the correction and then the last thing that caused it yesterday was um so many people entering this rally late and i'm going to skip ahead just so it's cohesive here if you look at the national association of active investment managers look how much of this rally that they missed. Basically, you were up to from, you know, 2200 on the S&P, give or take a little bit higher, 2250 or whatever, all the way up to about 2900. Okay? So, you're looking at 30 some odd percent and they were still down at 20 25% equity exposure. They missed the whole entire thing. And then by the time they took it up, here, okay, after you were already up 30%, guess what? They got shaken out. And look at that, 78% down to 57 from this little shakeout. It pushed them all out of the market because they were all waiting for the retest, which never came. And as soon as they got shaken out, these are the institutions. These are the active managers. This is not the quote unquote dumb retail that the uh, media keeps talking about that in this case has been wrong. They were the ones buying the discounts down here. So uh, kudos if you're a retail investor and you took advantage of some opportunities of high quality companies, not bankrupt companies, not, you know, silly penny stocks. Uh, you know, although some people know that game, that's not my thing. But if you bought quality for the long term, hats off to you. Um, so here's what happened, guys. Look at this. They got shaken out down here. Um, and then the market moved from 28 to 3,200, basically without them. And in the last two weeks, they were forced back in. What, why? Because it was the phenomenon of swing you bum, okay? So as Warren Buffett talked about, okay? Swing, swing you bum or turn in your uniform. And that's basically what happened to managers in the last two weeks who were chasing last week we are our the title of our article was um uh what was the title of our article last week oh the morgan whalen chasing you stock market so we've started to talk about these people chasing late and let's just go back and get you some clarity on that so they chased all the way up so here they are they've missed 40 some odd percent, the minute they get in for the last 5%, all of a sudden the carpet gets pulled out from underneath them. So as we said in the article, so they're at 91% and then boom, the minute they're all in and the boat is full, 
they pull the rug out from underneath them and you get a six, 7% correction in a day. And they have to puke because they're at a loss already. They were late to get in. So they probably lost some money here, got out, waited, missed the rally up, waited for the correction, got in, got shaken out again. Then they finally were, got forced in, swing you bum or turn in your uniform. And then boom, they're out again. So guess what this sets the stage for? Take a look at what they just did yesterday alone after getting shaken out. Here's what they're doing again. They dropped from 91% down to 77% in one day. In one day, they got shaken out from a 6 or 7% correction because they were late to the party. So um, this, is, this is human, this is investor psychology. You know who didn't get shaken out is, is likely? is the retail quote-unquote dumb money that was buying high-quality companies down here and rode the thing all the way up. A 7% doesn't bother them. A 30%, a 20% correction at this point wouldn't bother them because their bases are, are down here, or worst case down here, versus the institutions that chased up and now just got shaken out. And my guess is maybe we'll get a few more days of sideways, but my guess is we're going to take an, a surprising leg. Uh, we could potentially... Well, I, I'm not... Speculate. I'm going to show you data that um, tells us what historically happens after 5% corrections. And then you just probabilistically play it and you manage your risk. It doesn't always hold out, but all we can do is play statistics and probability, not predict anything, not, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but we just take averages and we look at positioning as a huge factor in how we think about things and, and what we do. So, um, Okay, so getting back to banks, because that was part of the sell-off on Thursday, yesterday. Um, so neither of these announcements were news, but rather just an excuse to take a breather after a 54% move off the lows. As you can see below, the yield curve, the difference between the twos and 10 yields uh, treasury, is still the steepest it's been since the last two bull markets in banks began in 2003 and 2009. The green and purple lines, respectively, right here and here are Wells Fargo and U.S. Bancorp. Uh, these are two stocks that we bought in March and April in size. And so basically what you want to look at is here. When it gets below one, that's an inversion, okay? And that historically signals within the next six to 18 months, you're going to get a recession. So we had the inversion in the late 90s and then it inverts and then the curve steepens, okay? And it got up to this ratio here, which was the bottom, and then for the next 2003 to 2007, you had a four-year bull run in financials. Now, this doesn't look like a very steep, amazing run, but what happened, and we're gonna emphasize uh, Wells Fargo and US Bancorp because we watch those closely because we own them. Uh, again, that's not advice. Click on terms above, do your own homework, um, and you know, speak to your advisor, et cetera. But Wells Fargo appreciated 177% over that period, and U.S. Bank Corp appreciated 216%. Then you had what? You had the yield curve inversion, which signaled the recession, and then you got the recession. So after the curve steepened again, and the, the Fed effectively reliquified the banks because the difference between what they uh, pay for capital, what they borrow at, and what they charge for capital, what they lend at, steepened, which 
throws huge amounts of profits to their bottom line. And guess what the, What happened in this cycle before the next inversion? Uh, Wells Fargo appreciated 936% and U.S. Bank Corp appreciated 853% over this period. So, um, you know, nine and eight times your money. That is a big deal. So if you put 100 grand in, you wound up with, you know, uh, 875,000 uh, over, over this cycle. So guess what happened? We inverted in August. We got the recession already, Q1 and Q2, negative GDP growth. They bottomed. And here's, the, again, the steepening. So, you know, we don't know if it's going to be 200%. We don't know if it's going to be 1,000%. We don't know if it's going to be 2,000%. But we do know that the odds favor financials do extremely well after the yield curve steepens. The yield curve is steepened at a pace we haven't seen. You know, this is very, very steep, much steeper than 2009. As a matter of fact, if you look at the slope, uh, steep, steeper, steepest, okay? So if you, you know, 200%, 800%, maybe this will be 1,500% over the next 10 years uh, with, the, with the amount of steepening and, and the fact that they've lagged, uh, you know, as an industry. And usually when that happens over extended periods, it has to play catch up. So um, to, to put it mildly, we're excited about the banks. And as we said in uh, Liz's, on Liz's show, was we were going to use any mini pullbacks over the summer to buy banks. We added to banks yesterday, not obviously at the best prices like we had in March and April, but we added yesterday for damn sure. Uh, thank you, Jerome Powell. And by the way, for the administration, I just want to say one thing because I've, I've been tough on Powell in the past. He tightened too quickly in 2018. Um, I, I think I went over and above last week to emphasize how amazing he's been in this recovery. So, you know, for the administration knocking on him, I would lighten up because he really saved us from a depression. And I think between the administration's policies and the Fed's action, U.S. Treasury, Mnuchin, Kudlow, uh, everything that was approved, the president approved, uh, I think that uh, certainly a, 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 a depression was averted and we, we are going to have growth levels next year uh, like we haven't seen in a long time. And we're going to talk about that because that was another thing that the Fed put out on Thursday, which was overlooked. Um, okay, so that's banks. Ah, now, a couple, we on May 28th, so what is this? June, so two weeks ago, we put this out in our article, the Dua Lipa did a full 180 stock market and sentiment results. We put out this chart for the first time. This is the S&P 500 stocks percent above the 200-day moving average. So what we had said here was um, it collapsed below 20%. So it got down to 3%. 3% means about 15 or 16 stocks of the S&P 500 were trading above their 200-day moving average. Okay, all those crashes throughout history. One, two, three, four, five, five times before this. So, and including this one, it's six periods in the last 20 years, um, where less than 20% of the S, this is the text that we wrote, less than 20% of the S&P components were trading above their 200-day moving average. Um, some periods they bounced around for a while. Once there was a recovery, which I'm defining as more than 60% of S&P 500 components trading above their 200-day moving average, see the blue horizontal line above, it marked the beginning of a meaningful rally, not the end. Okay, so I was saying, look, 
It crashed down, bounced around forever in 2003. When it finally got above 60, 60%, so uh, 300 of the components, more than 300 components were trading above their 200-day. Now, the stock market had probably rallied 30, 35, 40% off the bottoms at this point, but it was still the beginning of a multi-year bull run, even if you'd missed the first 30 or 40%. And if you also look here, after that first bounce, it did pull back a little bit and consolidate. So that's perfectly normal behavior before a multi-year bull run, up 30, 40, 50%, pull back a little bit, shake people out, the latecomers, Johnny-come-latelys and the weak sisters, as we say in industry parlance. Uh, same thing happened in 2009. You had this break below 20, but you did not have the recovery here. This is what I was I was laying out two weeks ago. We got to see this, we have to see this recovery. So you didn't have that in 08. Okay, so you went back down, and then when you finally did have it in early 2009, this was like June or July. You were already up 40, 50% off the lows, so people were waiting for the retest. The economic data was still looking like garbage. It was getting worse, not better at this point. And I want to show you here on the chart, this was a pretty material pullback after June, July, after this 40, 50% run off the bottom. And people were looking for a retest. They thought this was a depression. We were going to go down 80%. But 300 of the 500 had, had gotten over their 200-day moving averages. And despite this pullback and shakeout, guess what you had? You had one of the longest secular expansions in history. So this level was critical. Same thing in 2011 with the Euro, uh, Euro crisis. People worried about uh, the Eurozone falling apart until Draghi pulled out his bazooka and he said whatever it takes. Same exact thing, 20, 30% off the lows. Huge pullback here to shake people out after it hit 60, and then you just kept going and going for another four years. Huge, huge monster rally. Same thing in 2016 with the oil collapse. Then uh, you went down below 20. You didn't make it above 60 here on the rebound, so you went back down. Finally, you hit 60, and guess what? We had a three-year huge, huge rally until we got the next one drop below and then we had a year and a half rally monster run uh and then here we go we got the crash and that's what i was saying i didn't know are we going to go back and you know dance around for a little bit or are we going to get a quick recovery and just as quick as our crash was look what we got this week we got to move up to 68.34 so we did get the recovery and although you're up you know, we're up 48% off the lows or whatever it was, 45, 48%. And it would be normal to get some type of consolidation, which is why we were talking about it on Tuesday on the show and in this note on Wednesday night, which we put out Thursday morning. The reason we put it out Thursday morning, by the way, is because we're waiting on the AAII sentiment survey results that we include in this article every week aren't posted until Thursday morning. Otherwise, we would put it out Wednesday night. So this was a critical factor in getting that 60% above. Um, and we said that to, on May 28th. The condition that is not yet present, uh, is not present yet, is having met the 60% point, which means we could bounce around like in several previous instances, or it's possible we'll blast straight up to the 60% mark, as was the case in early 2019. Time will tell. Well, time told us, and we blasted right up. So um, the other aspect that we saw happen in the last few months is we had been talking 
um, for the last three months that five five stocks made up 20 to 25 percent. Uh, I'm sorry, close to 25 percent of the weight of the S&P. This you know wasn't healthy. You had to have more breath for a healthy rally. Well, that started to happen uh, as of June 5th. They dropped from whatever it was 24, 25 down to 20. As the cyclicals started to come, cyclicals are called that for a reason. They outperform in the beginning of the cycle and growth tends to outperform at the end of the cycle. Think, um, you know, 97 to 2000, end of the cycle was all a growth boom. Uh, you know, and think in the last couple of years, it was all growth because as the cycle grows longer in the tooth and growth is harder to come by and rates are lowered, um, people gravitate towards growth. And then in the beginning of the cycle, after everyone's thrown in the kitchen sink, they tend to have the biggest growth rates coming off the lows because they got pounded so so materially. So the difference is pronounced. And that's why you see that. Plus, you get the yield curve steepening, which we've belabored. Okay, so... Uh, okay, now... This was okay. Uh, this is the other thing that we emphasized both on Liz's show and in this article. Uh, as you can see above, we broke through the 60% level. Although we were up uh, significantly from the lows, it was the beginning of a new cycle multi year rally, not the end. So, for all of you thinking, oh, I missed 30, 40, 50%, uh, you're missing the whole point because this is what you've missed. This bit here. This is what you've missed. 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 That's what in, is in front of you. That's what's in front of you. That's what's potentially in front of you. That's what's, in, you know, nothing is ever guaranteed, but we just look at data and we try to make probabilistic decisions and manage risk. That's what's in front of you. And guess what? That's what you've missed, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot more in front of you. So, um, that's the key reason you shouldn't be worried if you miss the short term move. There will be opportunities in specific sectors and stocks in coming months, just as there were in early 2019, 2016, 2012, 2009, and 2003. So if you had bought in June, July, 2009, would you be disappointed having run? And the answer is no. So now getting back to the other continued signs of improvement, a lot of this was CNBC. Thanks for putting that out in one of their articles. Uh, mortgage purchase applications are going through the roof. Um, I have friends in that business in Connecticut, and they're saying that it's turned from a buyer's market for like, it was a buyer's market for like two weeks, and now it's a seller's market in bidding wars, which Connecticut has been like the worst residential real estate market for ages. It was one of the few states that didn't grow because it's so connected to the financial services industry, which got gutted with Dodd-Frank, although this ad administration is unwinding that and things are going to come back strong, um, you know, provided they can continue that trajectory in uh, deregulating and uh, making lending easier and credit more available, which will boost Main Street as well. Um, change in requests for directions on Apple Maps, so transit, walking, driving. Mid-April, cases peaked April 15th. No one was going anywhere. They were in lockdown, and now it's all the way back up. This is exciting for driving, walking. Transit's still slow, uh, which that, by the way, is a very good sign for cars. If people don't want to take mass transit, they're going to buy more cars. That's good for the economy as well. And obviously, getting on planes is a good thing. Restaurant bookings are coming off a death knell. Very hard to have bookings when the government says you can't open your doors. 
but now they're opening their doors and things are coming back quickly. I'm seeing it even here in Connecticut, which this is the epicenter, New York, uh, New Jersey and Connecticut. Ho even hotel occupancy rates are going up. And um, this is also interesting in Minnesota that, where the protests began over two, now about two, two and a half weeks ago, everyone was worried about you're gonna see an enormous spike in cases uh, we haven't seen that in, in the Minnesota data from the Department of Health. They've actually plummeted. Even though you have the 14-day lag, they're still going down. I'll take a look at the data over the weekend, see if that's changed. But um, that's good news because those were crowds of people very in close proximity, which could potentially bode well for sports, certainly travel, and potentially concerts in coming months, um, which would get things back to normal. Now on to the shorter term view for the general market. First, this is the report that comes out on Thursday morning, the AAII sentiment survey result, retail traders. Uh, this barely moved week to week. There was still caution. An extreme level of bullishness would be well over 40%. Uh, we were just at 34 and change, so there was not euphoria. Uh, same with the bearish. Uh, it was not down in the 20s, so there was not... Um, there was not a, not a ton of complacency on, among retail investors. The fear and greed was not pinned at uh, euphoric levels. At the bottom, it was near zero. You can see here, euphoric would be over 80. That's when you you know tend to take a look at lightening up. Um, things that have ri uh, risen quite a bit. Uh, we didn't get there. You know, we were up five points week on week. And here is where the euphoria was again in the active managers they panic bought in after missing we we've gone into that extensively so um you know what we covered here in our message for the week is that as we've made the case we'll likely get some mini pullbacks this turned out to be auspicious i didn't expect it the next day i thought it you know it's going to be over the next couple of weeks or, or over the summer for sure we're in summer but uh, we'll get some mini pullbacks, three to nine percent, and sideways consolidation in coming months. Um, so that was the caution. And for the rally to continue, we're going to see need to see continuing broadening participation uh, from leaders to laggards. The other thing that's important about the leaders to laggards story. Um, as a matter of fact, we're going to cover it in the Ask Me Anything section of this week's. I got three or four questions this week, so we'll cover that at the end on what that means for tech. And as I, in case I forgot to mention it repeatedly, for the last eight to 11 weeks, we still like banks and we're looking to add more if the opportunity presented itself. It presented itself yesterday. We took advantage. Uh, we also like and own pockets of defense stocks, home builders, energy, small caps. It will not be a straight line up. We found that out. Uh, but over the next six to 18 months, we believe we're going to see relative strength in these groups. Relative strength. That doesn't mean that tech stocks can't do well. The bet here is that the cyclicals will do relatively better. So a lot of managers barbell the approach. So they, they keep tech in their portfolio, but they add more cyclicals than they've had historically. Um, and that makes sense. It, it doesn't have to be either or. It's not some bipolar decision, either this or that. It's just saying most people have been underweight that, you know, these groups of cyclicals, they tend to outperform coming out of recessions and with steepening yield curves. You want to take advantage. I'm a little more aggressive than probably uh, average managers, but, um, you know, I run an absolute return product, so I can do that. 
So, um, and then lastly, uh, we may see growth levels by first half of 2021 that would not be possible if not for COVID-19 as we'd never have this level of global fiscal and monetary policy at play. Um, okay, so, you know, re-emphasis here at the bottom, we're not yet at euphoric levels, but active managers tripped over each other's to panic buy in the last two weeks, which is why we added the small short-term hedge in a handful of names. So we added a, a few shorts last week, we said in our note, which you can review here. And we added a couple this week and we actually uh, took profits on, I think two, two of them yesterday and one of them today when the market was red um, because they were put spreads, they made meaningful returns pretty quickly. And if the market rallies, we'll revisit putting more on, but you know, we buy weakness and we sell, we sell strength. That's just our, our you know, how we do it. We're old fashioned in that way. Um, we may remain very constructive in the intermediate term and will take advantage of any additional buying opportunities in laggard cyclical names should they arise in coming weeks. So we got one opportunity yesterday. Hopefully we'll get a couple more next week. We'll see. Um, maybe, maybe not. Now, we covered the update in the National Association of Active Mansion Managers, they got flushed out yesterday. In one day, they got flushed out because they top-ticked the buying, and some of them, I'm sure, were on margin, and that's what happens. That's why we never trade on margin. That's rule number one from Warren Buffett. So, um, which is why he never has to put his hand out and ask people for money, because he never puts himself into those situations, which he emphasized at his annual meeting this year. Uh, let's talk about economic data. Uh, Michigan consumer sentiment for June exceeded expectations today. This was a really good number. Uh, the rig count came down again. Low prices cure low prices. We're gonna, I, I think that's going to be a huge secular trade for the next three to five years, and we are positioned for it. We were early on that, but we added down, and we're going to have an awesome, awesome run on those. Um, and many of those are already green now with the huge run we've all had off the bottom. So Michigan consumer sentiment uh, was good. Recount was good for um, for energy bulls. Jobless claims beat expectations. It was uh, 1.45 versus 1.55 expectations. That beat continuing missed. It was almost 2.1 instead of 2.0. So that also compounded things yesterday on Thursday. That was also part of the sell-off. Um, however... We're going to see in, okay, so uh, as far as, we'll, we'll see the jolts in a minute. That also offsets that. Uh, the oil numbers this week was a build uh, in crude oil inventories, but Cushing was a draw. That was bullish, and distillates uh, also came in less than expected. So we did have a build in crude, so you saw a little profit taking after a 90% move last month. I think it was the biggest move in energy in history. On, on the upside, um, where is the JOLT? Uh, JOLT's job openings also exceeded expectations. They were 5.04 million versus 5 million expected. So people are offering jobs out there. And, you know, they may be not getting taken up on that. And the administration has talked about this multiple times. Uh, the emergency unemployment that the CARES package put in is $600 a week on top of the state. So people who are not working uh, until the end of July get $2,400 a month plus the state, which is a minimum of $400 a week is my understanding. 
Um, and I guess it probably goes up higher than that for a lot of people. But so the minimum people are getting is 4,000 a month or 50,000 a year run rate since whenever that kicked in. So let's call it April, May, June, July. So for four months, the minimum anyone's making without a job is 4,000 a month, which for many people that got laid off, the frontline people, they're making more money by staying home. So one of the things that they wanna do in the next stimulus package is pay people a bonus to get them to take all these jobs that are now available. Small business optimism through the roof beat expectations. It was expected, it was 90 last month, was expected to be lower this month, 86, came in at 94. And that's, that's about it for the week. Um, Jay Powell committed to keep the buying going at 80 billion a month, which was critical. I thought he did a great job. I think Navarro was tough on him. I think there were other factors that went into the sell-off, most of it being positioning yesterday and um, started to work itself out over today. We'll, we'll, we'll see in coming days. Hopefully there'll be more opportunities to add for cyclicals, but uh, it seems like it flushed out a lot of the weak sisters yesterday. Next, um, ah, this was the thing that they put out yesterday. The Fed put out their expectation for GDP growth in 2021. Very few people were talking about this. Uh, the median was 5% GDP growth, obviously off a low base, but we haven't seen levels like that in, in I think, decades now. So this is a huge, huge uh, opportunity. Decade will be a decade high, and that's the kind of thing we're talking with 12% of global fiscal stimulus. Even Europe pitching in on the fiscal front, it's, it's a big deal. And as we remember last year, everyone was saying monetary policies run its course. We need Germany to step up and do some fiscal. Well, they have, Germans have, the Asians have, and it's going to be seen as demand picks up and people go back to work. That velocity is going to kick up and things are going to cook. So it's nice to see them put their neck out for such a big number for 2021. Their 2020 it seems conservative, but... It's in line with the CBO was at negative 5.8. They're at negative 6.5 on a round numbers, $20 trillion economy. That's a $1.2 trillion problem. Uh, Larry Kudlow said something interesting on Varney this week. He said that of the, you know, we've been talking about it, close to $10 trillion of stimulus aid and liquidity combined. Only $1.6 trillion has been put out so far. Another trillion dollars is going in in the next 30 days. So we haven't even gotten started and we're already seeing this type of recovery with businesses just opening. So there's a lot more to come and it looks like they're gonna do a phase four stimulus package. Kevin Hassett was out talking about getting that done in no later than July before they go on recess. Uh, so that'll probably be another trillion dollars plus to top it off. And, uh, and that'll be a very good thing to get people back to work. Because the one thing that Jay Powell has really emphasized, and he's sincere and earnest about this, is he knows that, um, you know, it's kind of last in, first out. The last people to benefit from the last recovery in the last year and a half, two years, with wage inflation, with employment levels at historic levels, whether that's uh, low-wage workers, whether it's minority groups, they were at their historic best numbers ever in history. Best employment rate in minority groups, uh, best wage inflation that we've seen in a long time. And it was all accreting to the low end. Uh, the lowest paid workers were getting the highest pay raises because there was a, a competition for labor. And he's basically committed. He says, I don't want to see those people 
left behind for another five or 10 years like they were last time. We're gonna do everything humanly possible in our power to get these people back to work and back to the position they were in in January. We're gonna keep the pedal to the metal. And that's why he committed to 2022. And that's why he committed to the asset purchases. He wasn't selling cold dead fish. He was trying to communicate that he will do whatever it takes. The Fed put is here. And it's focused on getting that labor force participation rate, which was on the uptrend way back up, getting all these people back to work at the low ends and getting the wage inflation going so they can have better quality lives. So um, he, he's, he's doing a good job. He's really, really stepped up, at, obviously, with, with the help of the Treasury and the administration. So don't underestimate that. Carl Quintanilla of CNBC put out a very interesting chart this morning I found really interesting. Um, it was from JP Morgan. He said the implied cash bond and equity allocations of non-bank investors worldwide is still pointing to plenty of upside for equities. A return to historical averages would require just to get back to this post Lehman average, not the pre Lehman average would require a 47% rise in global equities from here. <clears throat> so this was also talked about in another article. I just want to point out which is for all of the Friedmanites out there, Milton Friedman, um, look at what ha what's happened to M2 money supply. This is not a trajectory that you want to short. When money supply grows this precipitously, and I think it's up 20 some odd percent in the last month, you do not want to be short with money supply increasing that fast, just to make sure everyone saw it. This was from Barron's. But just to see the huge increase, I think it's 23% month on month. Um, and that's in line with this uh, note from JP Morgan that Carl Quintanilla put out today. All right, let's make sure we've got everything here. Uh, okay, next, we just want to update you on some of the recovery stats. Uh, we are up now 500% off the lows in terms of travel, give or take uh, April. 15th, April 14th was the low. That was also consistent with the peak case number. 87,000 people traveled uh, by air. It's now up to 500,000 people yesterday, which is at, you know, give or take, uh, you know, down from 2.6 last year, but up huge off the bottom. So things continue to recover. Um, we covered the hospitalization rate. And now we are going to uh, S&P 500 earnings. You know, we traded up to 3,400. We did $163 uh, of S&P earnings in 2019. They still have S&P earnings for 2020 at about 164. I think that number is actually gonna be low. Usually they set earnings high and they come down. I think now they've set earnings low and they're gonna go up. But even so, that's 200 some odd. I don't, I don't even remember where we closed today, but you know, let's call it, um, well, we traded down to uh, 3014. So let's say we closed at, you know, 3100. That's still 300 points above where we are, give or take now. So another 10% based on these forward earnings. And I think these numbers go up. And keep in mind, rates have come down since this. So the discount rate affords multiple expansion. Plus, if you have 5% GDP growth, that's also going to be a catalyst for multiple expansion coming out. So um, surprisingly, the earnings power is there for us to press higher uh, after we uh, consolidate some of the gains. For those of you listening on the podcast, 
if we get cut off, I think we'll close close out close to on time. Go to hedgefundtips.com. You can watch the last few minutes on the video cast. Just fast forward to the end. Um, okay, now questions from the Ask Me Anything. I put on the email every day. If you're on our daily hedge fund tips email, if you're not, just go to hedgefundtips.com, scroll down to here on the right side, get Hedge Fund Tips free email newsletter right there, and you'll get daily articles and everything. You can look over my shoulder, uh, and that's free. But in that email, I say we have an Ask Me Anything section weekly on the podcast, video cast. Uh, ask me your questions, and I'll answer some at the end. So Ben asked, actually last week, I didn't have a chance to answer it because he sent it uh, a little later in the day. Uh, did the did options writers truly lose $245 million today on SPY alone? This was the day, I think you had a huge end of day rally or whatever it was, based on MaximumPain.com. MaximumPain.com is just a website that looks at open interest, where where is it concentrated on puts and calls, and the thesis is that market makers want to push it to that level so the most amount of premium is lost to the buyers and accreted to the sellers. Surely they would have lost tens of billions of dollars today based on almost all stock closing prices being way above the maximum pain prices. How did the option sellers hedge against us? Maybe uh, buying tons of call options. They hedge against it with stock. Uh, Google... Delta hedging, D-E-L-T-A hedging, and you'll see how sellers hedge out uh, some of their risk. You can't you know, really hedge out all of your risk, which is why we never sell options, but um, na naked, we never sell naked options ever. Um, but look up Delta hedging, you'll see how that's done. Next question is from, um, to, 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 uh, a Salter says, chart looks very much like the market during this bear market slash downturns due to coronavirus. Did institutions hold these kinds of equities? They have great valuations, and yet it fell with the market. Who sold? Thanks for helping me understand this all. If you ever need an apprentice, I'm your guy. <laughs> okay, so uh, thanks, A Salter, for the question. Um, so... I think he was asking about, oh, okay, he, he's asking about ACN Accenture. So Accenture dropped quite a bit during the um, sell-off. Let's just pull it up here. Okay, so basically what, yeah, so this was a huge drop from $215 down to 136 Obviously, their business wasn't impaired by 50% for the long term, maybe in the short term, and it's since recovered. So who was selling? This was, uh, this was liquidity. I mean, everyone and their mother was selling. Just like yesterday, institutions were puking out because they were late to the party. Same thing happens, you know. Once the selling starts, it can just cascade until there's a floor. People could not quantify the risk of the pandemic because there were no treatments, there were no cures, no one could tell the timing. China had not fully recovered yet, so there was no really way to quantify what was going to happen. And people were talking depression and had the Fed, Treasury and administration not stepped in with the um, uh, force magnitude, you know, 
brilliant policy formulation and implementation. You would have never seen this, certainly not this quickly. What they did was miraculous, saved probably tens of millions of jobs and years and years of recovery. They learned from 2008, 2009. 2008, 2009, they saw the plate falling off the table. They just watched it, it crashed all over this floor and they spent 10 years putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. Here, they saw the plate falling off the table. They put a trampoline underneath rather than crashing all over the floor. It just bounced right back up. And, uh, and, and we can get back to a good growth rate in a relatively short period of time. So, you know, this is mostly institutional and, uh, and panic selling is really what it came down to until the, the floor was put under the market and, um, and we could recover. So, um, and that's why we talk about this and we go into some emphasis each week to recognize these patterns for future opportunity. Uh, so you can take advantage like we were talking about on Yahoo. Next, 